as you remain standing in body and spirit and we come before God's word. Let's do so very likely as Jesus and the disciples would uh, have done by reciting what uh, they called the Shema, what Jesus called, of course, the great commandment. If you'll follow after me in Hebrew, we'll join together in English. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Ahad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, We're thinking about the issue of uh, change and the gospel of Matthew, which was written to uh, people who had uh, uh, experienced the death of Jesus and then later the destruction of their temple. And Matthew, uh, through the Holy Spirit, helps them to understand change. So today, as we think about change, we look at uh, the commandments or the law or the teaching known as the Torah. Uh, We're picking up in Matthew 5 at verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it was said to people long ago, do not murder. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Okay, I haven't done this ever, but I'm going to do this this morning. I need you to work with me. I need you to, for a little while, suspend disbelief. I need you to go places where often Protestant Christians will not go on two issues this morning. And if so, I think it will help us understand this text. Here's the first thing I need you to do this morning. Realize that the law, as is given in the Older Testament, is a gift. It is a good thing. Uh, Paul never really said it was a bad thing. And Jesus, by the way, said, I have come to fulfill it, not to abolish it. Uh, sometimes we get a little bit influenced by reformers, Luther and others, uh, and their interpretation in the 16th century of Paul that sometimes we miss that the law actually was a gift. These were people who had been enslaved for 400 years. Uh, they had no idea uh, how to have a society. They'd never made a decision decision for themselves. And so part of what the law did was to give them a guide in a sense for freedom. So think about it. And let's say on your way home from uh, church today, uh, you will come across a streetlight that is out because of a power outage or a stop sign that's been knocked down or, or, or washed away. Uh, you'll realize how difficult it is sometimes to not have law, how things don't flow as smoothly when there are directions and there are order or there is order. Or think of it another way. Uh, Nikki Gumbel, um, a teacher in Britain, talks about this, that the one time uh, he went to his uh, uh, one time he went to his son's uh, soccer match there in the UK, but the refs didn't show. So uh, the parents kind of looked around. They looked at him. They said, well, you're a lawyer. You probably know the rules. Go out there and ref this game. Uh, so he said he went and the game is like a total disaster for a half. Things are out of control. Kids are angry. Parents are angry. And then suddenly the refs show up. 
And he said in the second half, when it's played by the rules and the guidelines, the game becomes a beautiful thing. Uh, The law in the same way was intended by God to be a gift to us. To, and so when it is interpreted appropriately, and, and the, the euphemism for that in English is, in, is fulfill it. When it's interpreted the right way and applied the right way, it's fulfilled, it aids life and makes life go better. So for a few moments this morning, I need you to realize that actually the law is not a bad thing. 613 commandments were meant to help people. Uh, Second thing I need you to do, I think this is a bigger stretch for you, but I need you to realize this morning that in ancient Israel in the first century, the Pharisees were the good guys. I think I love what Dr. Alexander Shia said about them. He said, unfortunately, the Gospels catch the Pharisees on a bad hair day, and it's frozen for all time. And uh, we get the picture of them as, uh, as, as mean-spirited and uh, only out to oppress people. And when in actuality, they were the heroes of people in the first century. Because the belief, ever since the, um, the uh, Jews had gone into exile to the Babylonians, and now they were under the rule of the Romans, the belief was part of the reason they were imprisoned is because they weren't keeping God's rules. So the Pharisees dedicated themselves to help people learn, memorize, and obey God's law in their world. Uh, And in fact, when they were carted off away from the Jerusalem temple and they couldn't figure out how to worship God, the Pharisees invented something known as a synagogue. And they actually raised up teachers uh, to teach God's word to keep it alive. And in some cases, those teachers got paid. Let me put it another way. Thanks to the Pharisees, I've got a job. I mean, that's, that, that's what they, and, and people like moms and dad would want their kids to grow up and be the cream of the crop. And in many ways, those were the Pharisees. They were responsible for helping people obey God's law, live God's life the right way, so that they wouldn't fall into even further destruction than they had already fallen into in their history. And then as a pastor, I have to appreciate the Pharisees. They showed up every time the door was open. They fasted twice a week, and they, they double tithed. They gave 20% of all of their income in, uh, to uh, the work of God. We could use a few people like that. So suspend disbelief for a moment and realize these are the good guys. So what Jesus is saying as he looks at the crowd is he says, your righteousness must exceed those of the, of the most devoted people you know. You need to do better at interpreting and fulfilling the law than they did. That's a big challenge. So now that we've got the setting, it raises the question, how do you do better at keeping God's word than the people who memorized it and taught it for a living? I have a couple of ideas. Jesus said, I've come not to abolish the law, but fulfill it. And as I mentioned, that means I've been meant to interpret it the right way. If you abolish it, it means you misinterpret it. So what Jesus is saying is, look, you folks have got to do a better job applying these rules than the Pharisees have. Well, what's their problem? A couple thoughts. One of their problem is they seem to be more devoted to the letter of the law than the spirit of the law. That sometimes they read it so literally that they actually miss God's uh, point. So, for example, N.T. Wright uses this, um, uh, this example. Let's say there is a mother on this side of the street and her eight-year-old son on this side of the street. And she wants to be united with her eight-year-old son. She's worried that he is away from her. So she says, come, 
come, come over here. And so the eight-year-old starts to come. Suddenly, mom sees there's a car going about 40 miles an hour down the road. And mom says, stop, don't come. So eight-year-old stops. Out of danger, the car goes by. And then mom says, come. Now, those were two different, uh, three different commands given to uh, the child. But the one intent was that mom and child be together. So sometimes the Pharisees would actually miss the intent of what was going on. That's what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you've heard it said, don't kill anybody. Well, look, let me tell you, the real intent is we need to get along with each other. So don't even be angry with them. He was trying to get past the letter to the intent. It's a rabbinic technique called putting a fence around God's word or God's instruction. Uh, So for example, when my uh, youngest son, uh, was little. We lived on a street that had some traffic um, in the town in where we lived. And so we told him uh, that he could not leave the front porch. Now, the main goal was we didn't want him out in the street. But we were afraid if he got as far as the yard with a ball or something, he might head out into the street. So we put a fence around him. We put an extra barrier. That, but our intent was, not that he never have any fun, but our intent was to keep him safe. And so rabbis would often uh, try to set up things in ways that would help you get to the heart of the matter. And so just to tell you, don't kill anybody, sort of misses it. Uh, as Dallas Willard used to say, uh, you don't go from here to New York by saying, uh, I'm not going to go to London and I'm not going to go to Paris. You need a more direct route than that. You need better instruction than that. And so in some ways, the intent isn't about what you avoid. The intent is what does God want? And so here's the one that might be a little hard, but let me suggest it. What the rabbis figured out and Jesus knew is sometimes to obey the, the law's intent, you had to disobey the letter. So for example, by the day of Jesus, the death penalty was rarely, if ever, carried out. They realized that they were in a day now where the car was no longer speeding their direction and it was safe to cross the street. And so they realized that the death penalty was no longer appropriate. That's what makes it so bizarre that in the Gospel of John, they catch this woman in in adultery. And bizarre, first of all, they let the man go free. But also bizarre is that they want to kill her. Because uh, by Jesus' day, they pretty much said, no, that doesn't fulfill the intent of what God wants. Taking a life is not really what God had in mind. So another way to put it is, when you uh, try to fulfill the law, one of the things we can ask is, what does God really want here? What is God hoping for from this law or this teaching? So that's the first thing. I think Jesus was just saying, by the letter of the law, sometimes you miss it, you miss God's intent. The second thing is, what is God's intent? And this is what Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses those of the Pharisees. Stop. The word righteousness. Now, thanks to our wonderful reformers, I love so many of them, Methodist founder John Wesley, uh, they taught a particular angle of righteousness, which might be helpful. It was kind of like right standing, like uh, I'm, I'm in good stead with God because uh, my sins are forgiven, and that's right. But in the Bible, righteousness always first had to do with your relationship. You are righteous because of your relationship with God and the way you are related with other people. So I think what you see on the Sermon on the Mount is what does Jesus care about? Jesus cares about that we have good relationships with each other, with our community, uh, with our world. Those are the, and uh, the Pharisees didn't. 
that wasn't as important to them. Uh, They thought principles were more important than the people affected by those principles so that the Pharisees came up with more than 1,200 ways that you could get busted for violating the Sabbath. And you'll remember what Jesus does. Jesus looks at this and says, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Humans weren't made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for humans. In other words, he's saying, people, you are important to God. And the way that we rightfully interpret the Bible is in ways that help us uh, be in better relationship with God and better relationship with each other. And the Pharisees made the rule more important than the people affected by the rule. Well, if it all sounds a bit confusing, is there a way that kind of a shortcut that helps us know how to interpret uh, uh, what God is doing in the Bible and God's teachings and laws? And I want to tell you, yes, there is. And that's when Jesus said, I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus is saying is, I'm going to show you how to rightfully interpret God's laws. If you will watch me and follow after me, we'll get this thing right. In other words, Jesus is God's teaching embodied in a person. If you want to know how God will respond to a particular situation, then you look in the Gospels to see how Jesus responded in that particular situation. You may remember a few weeks ago, we talked about Moses and Elijah. The law and the prophets were on the mountain with Jesus. And remember, Jesus turned dazzling white. Well, one of the things that that, uh, Matthew was saying in that is, look, if Jesus is greater than the Bible. The Bible points to Jesus. If you want to know how to live the Bible out, if you want to know how to act in daily life, you watch Jesus and the way he would carry out God's law is the way you would carry it out. And I think the problem with the Pharisees, as much as they loved God's law, is they tended to love God's law more than they really loved the people affected by God's law and maybe even more than they might have loved God. Hard to know, but they were the best of the best. And Jesus says, the only way you get better than the best is to follow me and look at the world and act in the world the way I do. Reminds me of a story some of you heard me tell before. And it's uh, from the late Fred Craddock. He did postgraduate work in New Testament in the 1950s in Germany. And we kind of forget because of World War II that the uh, Germans were the leading biblical scholars for, the 20th, for most of the 20th century until, uh, until after um, the war. So uh, in the 1950s, he goes there to study New Testament. And, but he's on a day off, so he's on a tour. And he kind of follows around as his tour guide, Rolf, leads him. But he starts to do the math in his head, and he begins to figure out that Rolf must have been an older child or young teenager during World War II. So finally, during a break, he just couldn't resist. He said, Rolf, tell me what it was like on the home front here in Germany during World War II. What was it like? And Rolf said, oh, uh, what was it like for a little boy? And Rolf said, oh, it was exciting. Said it was exciting. He said, We did a lot of camping together. We got to put on uniforms and we camped and we learned survival skills and outdoor skills. We started every day at the camp with a prayer. We sang a hymn, Now Thank We All Our God. We did a devotional. We studied the Bible. We went out and uh, chopped wood or learned to pitch a tent and did the various, learned to cook outside, all these activities. We'd come back in at night and before we'd go to bed, we would uh, pray again. We would sing again another hymn. 
we would have uh, closing devotional thoughts and, and scripture. And then we'd get up the next day, sing now, thank we all our God, pray again, hear a devotional, study the Bible, go back out in the woods. And, and Fred said to him, that's amazing. What a group. Rolf, what did you call that group? Rolf's response was, Hitler Youth. And I remember, or shall I say, I will never forget Craddock's response. He said, I thought about the adults involved in this. And he said, one of the things I thought about the adults is maybe they knew the Bible and they were teaching it, but they didn't know God, the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible always calls us to interpret the Bible in ways that bless other people that love God and reflect Jesus. May we live that in our lives as well.